And his words concerning those terms of discipleship, which were heavy but attainable, that it was then that it says that came or drew near to him all the publicans and the sinners to hear what it is that he had to say. Now you would think that after saying those things that those people might make distance. But there was something about the way that Jesus was and the things that Jesus said that gave them hope. The publicans were those among the Israelites that were employed by the government of Rome, which was an enemy of the state of Israel, uh, technically, and thus, because they were employed by Rome, they were hated by the people. And so these were outcasts. The sinners were outcasts of a different sort. They weren't employed by the enemy, but they were at enmity with the God of Israel and the laws of the God of Israel. And so these people who would never be accepted in the religious establishment of Israel in those days were embraced by Jesus. And thus they sensed that there was truth in him. They found grace in his eyes and thus they drew near to hear him. Now, in that, it drew criticism from the Pharisees. And thus their response, again in verse 2, is that it says that they murmured against him because it says that he receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, this is the first time and probably the only time in, in the whole gospel that the Pharisees got something right. Jesus does receive sinners, and yes, indeed, Jesus does eat with them. Unfortunately, they weren't rejoicing over the fact that Jesus was doing these things, but rather it was a source of criticism. Now, in response to that criticism... What Jesus does now for the remainder of the chapter is that he speaks forth three parables to the Pharisees that are there in his audience as well as the publicans and the sinners that are there in his audience in order to rebuke the criticism that they're bringing upon him. And so these three parables, they are all one in the same. They all have the same basic ingredients in them. And they are that something was lost, and then that something is sought after, and then that something is found, and then there is rejoicing. So in all three parables, there is lost, sought, found, and then rejoicing. And so Jesus begins the parables in verse 3. It says that he spoke this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he is found. So you see one that is lost and then it is gone after or sought after until it is found. And when he has found it, there's the found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. There's the rejoicing. And then when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise, and so now he applies the parable that he just spoke by by connecting it into the natural realm, the, the spiritual realm. He says, I say to you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. And so the first of these scenes concerns a a shepherd that has a hundred sheep 
and one of them goes missing. And so in concern, out of concern, in a good shepherd's heart for the one lost sheep, he leaves the 99 where they are. He goes out and he expends whatever resources he has at his disposal to go then and find the one that has wandered off and gone missing because sheep have absolutely no homing skills whatsoever. And, uh, and they will just bring themselves to a place where they are in utter peril, um, that there's absolutely no chance that they will live unless something happens uh, and they somehow uh, are found in, in the whole thing. And so um, they go out and, uh, and, and he looks for this whole thing. And so what the parable teaches us is that the heart of God towards the lost is that he wants to search them out and he wants to find them. Now, I know the question that anyone is going to have concerning this um, parable and this concept is this, is that is anyone really lost when it comes to the eyes of the Lord? Because, I mean, really, the Bible teaches us that God sees all things and that God knows all things. And so if God sees and knows all things, then is it even possible for someone to be lost at all. But notice the word that is used by Jesus there in the application there in verse 7 when he says that likewise joy will be in heaven over one sinner that repents. In other words, it isn't just that God doesn't know where the person is and so he goes out and then he finds them. But the idea is that there has to be a process of working within that person's life to bring them to a point where they're willing to be found. And that is that they're willing to come to a place of repenting from their sin and that life that they had in the world apart from him in order then that they might give their life to him and then be found by him in that way. It's a funny thing that when I got saved and I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was 19 years old, I thought that what I was doing was just kind of making an assessment of the path that I was on and considering the path that he was putting before me and that I was just making a, a decision and making a choice that I was going to then follow him and I put my faith in him. And that's all I thought that happened there is that I chose uh, to follow him and I, and I made a conscious decision. Nobody made it for me. Nobody made me do it. I remember right where I was uh, and what I did. I remember driving in my car. I had thrown my um, good news Catholic Bible that I was given as a child into the car with me and not, don't even know why, but just did and, and drove off and didn't know if I'd ever come home again that day. And I didn't. I came home a week later. Long story. I won't get into it. But I remember driving in the car that day. And I remember driving, leaving the city where I lived and, and just going away, not even knowing where, where. And I said to God, I said, okay, God. I said, if you're real, and if you're real, then whatever that means, I'll do it. If you're real and you want me to shave my head and wear robes and live in a monastery, I'll do it if you're real. If it means that I have to wear a barbed wire suit and chastise myself and, and, and literally, I'll do, if you're real, God, I'll do it. But I need to know that you're real. And that day I was making a decision and I said, God, I will follow you, whatever that is, if you're real. And God met with me over the course of that week and revealed himself, not in a supernatural way wherein you know he showed up and said okay holes in my hands and in my side and here yeah it's, it's real it's the real deal but but he did things that week wherein when i came back at the end of that time salvation had come into my life and what i thought at that time was just that i'd given my life to christ that i just made a decision 
But what I realized on the other side of that a little ways and then able to look back at how that whole thing went down is that I realized that God has, had expended tremendous resources on my account in order to bring me to that place where I was willing to make that decision. And that it was a process that took at least five years within my life to bring me to the point where I was willing to make that decision. And it started just with people sharing with me. I would get on an airplane to go somewhere and the person next to me just happened to be a Christian. And we would get in a conversation and they would share about the things of God. I would sit in a class next to someone and just strike up a conversation and they would turn out to be a Christian. I would make friends with someone and they would invite me to their church youth group. And after a while, I started to get a little sick of it. started to get a little angry actually about it. And then one by one, my girlfriend started getting saved. So I would start dating a girl and it would be a great relationship. But she would go to the youth groups and she would get saved. And then she would come and say, you need to get saved. And I would say, no, I don't. Have a nice life, you know. And that kept happening to me to a point where I had made a decision that I utterly rejected the God and the gospel that our God gives and lays out before us. And then God went to a different technique. He went from just bringing people to share the message to then he began to strip things out of my life. He began to show me what happens when you continue down a path without God and and, and you have an obstinate heart that's set against God. And he began to remove things one, one by one from my life to the point where I was on the last fiber before I would lose my mind. And I knew that that's what was taking place, losing all self-control, all discipline, all ability to, to, to govern my own course. And he brought me to a place where I would say, okay, God, I cannot live this life apart from you. And whatever that means, God, I will follow you, whatever that is, as long as I know that you're real. And what I realized later is that God had gone after me from a long time seeking to get me to come to that place where I would make the decision to come to him. And God's done that for every single one of us. He's expended tremendous resources in each one of our lives to bring us to a place where we would repent and give our lives to him. And thus, it says that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over the 99 that are left there in it. And so that realization, what it what it did, did in me is that it made me realize that God doesn't just accept a person, but that God actually wants a person. That God doesn't just accept you when you give your life to him and say, okay, well, you, you can come in or I'll allow you because I did make it pretty broad and say whosoever. And, but that's not the idea at all. That he, out of a hundred people, he knew your face and he knew your name and he knew your story. And he went out after you and he put forth whatever resources he had to, and God does that for every single person uh, that ever lives. If, he can, if it's a whosoever gospel, and no one can come except the Father draw him, then that means his resources are set forth to draw every person that's ever been born and bring them to a saving knowledge of his Son. Uh, and there's joy in heaven over everyone that repents. I, I wonder, as I read this parable, it says that there were 99 that were left in the wilderness, but that the one who was found out missing, was brought to the shepherd's home. And I wonder if the 99 in the wilderness are a picture or a a, a mild rebuke toward the Pharisees who thought that because they were in the fold of all the rest of the other people and because they weren't as far gone as the one that had wandered off, that they were okay. But here's the heart of our shepherd, the heart of our God, is that he is not content with the life of any person until they are home. That's where he wants them, home, in his home. And so then he gives the second parable in verse 8. He says, Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, 
If she loses one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And so you see in this verse, the coin is lost and then it is sought. And then in verse nine, and when she has found it, there it's found, she calls her friends and her neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. It's the same parable told a second time with a different illustration. This time not with sheep, one lost, but this time it's 10 drachmas or 10 silver coins, uh, a coin that carries a little bit more value than the common denarii in those days. And that when one of those coins goes missing, the woman isn't content to just say, oh, well, I got nine more, you know, and they all look alike and they're all the same. And so I'll just let that one go. But no, she, she sweeps the house. She turns on the light. She does everything she can until she finds that one missing piece. And when she does, she rejoices over the fact that she finds it to the point where she puts it on Facebook and lets everyone know with a picture so that they can rejoice with her over the fact that this coin that has, has been missing uh, has now been found. Now, if you have ever lost money or if you've ever lost something that's valuable and you know that feeling that grips you inside when you think, oh my goodness, or when you lose, sometimes I lose my wallet for a half a day. You know, and you think everything that's in there, the debit cards, uh, whatever cash you have, your driver's license, your bank account number, because you can never remember it when you have to go write it on the slip and all this important stuff that's in there. And then you lose that for half a day and you don't know any, you can't find it anywhere. And then it turns up in the washing machine <laughs> and, you, and you find it, you know, you, but you rejoice because you say, oh my goodness, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to make every one of those phone calls and go through everything uh, that I would have to go through should, should that be missing. And, and Jesus says that that's the same feeling, but now multiply it because you're not talking about something of temporal value, such as a piece of silver, but you're talking about a human soul. And he says that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. So it's lost, it's sought, it's found, and then there's rejoicing. Now what Jesus does next is what he is. He takes those two uh, stories that in many ways are disconnected from real life and that are uh, kind of hard to attach to the point that he's trying to make. And he puts um, real life on it by, by making it into a, a story uh, of something that actually happened. Notice in verse 12, or I'm sorry, verse 11. And so he said that a certain man had two sons. So he goes from 100 to 10 and now to two. And if you really think about it, in each one of these parables, there's really only two categories. There's lost and then there's found. And so now there's two sons and they're actually both lost. And it says that the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, for those that were listening to Jesus at this time when he gives this parable, this is the most jaw-dropping thing that they could hear Jesus say concerning what this son said to his father. Basically, what this son is saying to the father is he's saying, hey, listen, everything that you've worked for your whole life, I know that when you die, I'm going to get a portion of it, and I really don't want to wait until you die to have what you've worked for, so please give it to me now. I would like that living at this moment, not later. And the reason why he wants it now is we're going to discover in just a minute is because he wants to live his life as though his father was dead. 
And so that's the heart that's in this young man, and it's probably the most aberrant thing that could uh, hit the ears of a Jewish audience in those days. And so the father obliges, which would be even more amazing. And so he divides unto them his living. The younger son would get one-third, and the older son would get two-thirds. The oldest uh, male would always get a double portion, and everybody else would divide uh, the other portions. And since there's only two sons, two-thirds would go to the older, one-third to the younger, and he gets it. But then it says in verse 13 that not many days after, and so it didn't take long, the younger son gathered all together and he took his journey into a far country. Now, you could circle that if you want, and close by you could write the word lost. Because that's what happens to this young man when he takes this living that his father now gives to him, and he moves off into a far country, is that he gets lost. He's separated from home. He's outside of his father's care and outside of a relationship with his father. And in his mind, his father is already dead. He's got no plans to return. That's why he wanted the portion of goods so that he could leave. His father could stay home and die. And so there's a break in the relationship. And so it says that he took his journey into a far country. And there, once he got there, he wasted his substance with riotous living. Now, the word riotous that Jesus uses right there, it means to utterly, uh, to live utterly and shamelessly immorally. And so that was what was in the young man's heart is that he wanted to go out and he wanted to live in utter shame, in absolute immorality, and just to do whatever it was that he was inclined to do within his heart. It's where we get the word prodigal. You've, you've heard this called before the parable or the story of the prodigal son the one who is living prodigally. And the word prodigal literally means to live wastefully or recklessly extravagant. And that's what this young man had an appetite for. He saw his father as the ticket for him to do it. And so he takes the goods, he gets lost, and he goes and wastes his substance with riotous living. However, that doesn't last long. Verse 14, it says, And when, and notice that word when, because when someone has this kind of mindset, it's not a matter of if, it's always a matter of when, It says, when he had spent all, so he uses up every little bit of it until there's nothing left, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And so what we see happening here in verse 14 is that you have two things, and I want you to mark these things and understand them. Number one is that you have consequence. That's the part where he loses all. (laughs) that's consequence. You go out and you seek to live the way that you want to live without any uh, discretion or, or concern about what God thinks or what heaven thinks or what's right and wrong, then it's only a matter of time before you lose all. And for you and I, that's not going to be the silver or the gold that this young man was given, but it's going to be everything that God has given you and the resource of what makes you who you are. You'll waste every bit of it the potential of what a life is, the gifts and the talents that God has given specifically to you, the personality that makes you an expression of him that no one else can be an expression of because God's given that part to you. You go out and you say, I don't want, I, I don't want God and I want to live my life like God was dead, then you're going to lose every bit of that. All of it will go to waste. So that's the first part is consequence. But consequence here is coupled with divine withdrawal. Do you notice that? Do you see it? It says that when he had spent all, there arose a great famine in the land. 
Now, that great famine was not caused by the wasteful living of this prodigal young man who was living riotously. The famine can only be caused by God. And throughout the scripture, anytime famine is seen, it is always connected to the divine hand of God withdrawing resources from those who are walking in a way that is contrary to his ways. And so what you can do is you can circle the word famine that you see in the Bible and close by it, you could write the word sought or searching. Because what the father in the parabolic sense is doing at this point is that he is letting circumstances come into the life of this young man, seeking to bring him to his senses to realize that he's living his life in a wasteful and foolish way. And so the consequences of his sin are being coupled with divine withdrawal of resources that he would need. And the result of that is that emptiness begins to set in. Notice what it says. It says that he began to be in want. He begins to feel the vacuum in his soul that what he sought to fill himself with is not satisfying him and it's not sufficient to meet the needs that he has inside or the want that he thought that he could satisfy by going out and living this kind of life. But what this young man does is what most of us do, is that God at his first knock is ignored. And when the want comes, he thinks, all right, well, I'm feeling this, but I'm not done yet. And I still think that I can make this work. I still think I could live this life on my own apart from God. And so now he tries plan B. Notice what it says in verse 15. It says, so he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, which in the parable would be the world. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Okay, now again, remember who the audience is. These are Jewish people. And to a Jew, swine was an unclean animal. You can't get really much lower than to be one who's feeding swine. You know, and so God is allowing this guy now where he can't get a job anywhere, but in a place where immediately upon entering into that field for the first time, he's going to feel the shame of everything that he's been taught growing up and the gnawing of the defilement of what he's doing is going to every day grate upon his soul. He's out there and he's feeding swine in this whole thing. And so he's at a point where he's getting very, very low, but he's not at the bottom yet. Watch this. It says, verse 16, that he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him that he was brought to a place where he is so hungry and so wanting at this point that he is at a point in his mind where he's willing to commune with pigs. And that's what it was in the Jewish mind to eat with someone else. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to eat with pigs. He sees the slop, the empty corn husks mixed with partial corn flakes and spoiled milk and you know, I could get grosser, but I won't. And he, and he sees that slop, that liquefied, broken down, whatever it is, being poured into the trough. And in his mind, he says, oh, that I could just have one cupful. If only I could gnaw on one of those corn husks for just a minute. But even in reaching out to, to grab the corn husks, the supervisor looks over and says, hey, that's the pig's food, hands off. Now, how low do you have to be to a point where you would rather commune with pigs than do what you know is right? 
And so at this point now where he finally hits rock bottom, you can't go any lower than where he is right now. He has absolutely nothing left to his name. We're going to see in a minute that he doesn't even have shoes on his feet and he's hungry for pig slop because there's nothing else for him to eat. That it says at that point in verse 17, it says that when he came to himself, so he wakes up in the middle of this position that he's in. And he said, how many hired servants or slaves of my father's have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger. He realizes where he has fallen from, the height from which he has fallen from. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I will arise and go. Now in my Bible, I have that sentence, that part of the sentence in parentheses. And underneath, I wrote the word repentance. Because that's exactly what this is. This is repentance. He says, I will arise and go. And that's exactly what it means to repent. It means to realize where you are in the position of your life right now and to realize that you don't have to be in that position in your life, but to understand what it's going to take for you to not be in that position of your life and for you to make the decision consciously to arise from where you are, turn back in a different direction from where you are, and go somewhere else. And that's exactly what this young man does right here. He repents of the condition that he's in. And then he says, I'm going to arise, and I'm going to go to my father, and I will say unto him, I have sinned. Now, I put those three words again in parentheses, and right above it in my Bible, I wrote the word confession. Is that he repents of his sin, and then he he decides, I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to confess that what I did was wrong that the way that I'm living is wrong. The thing that I asked for is wrong. And, and where I've brought myself is because of sin within my life. It's no one else's fault. It's not my father's fault that he didn't wire resources to me and keep me going in the position that I was in. It isn't society's fault that I couldn't find a job. It's not the government's fault because the economy wasn't good enough for me to find anything but pig feeding. He doesn't blame anybody else, but he blames himself for the condition that he's in because it's his fault for the condition that he's in. And so he says, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And then the second part of his speech, after his confession, he's going to say in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so we see repentance and confession that is coupled now with fruit within his life. And you say, well, where's the fruit? Here's the fruit. There are two things in this story with this young man that he asks of his father. In the first, he says, give me my portion of the inheritance that's coming to me. And now here he says, make me as one of your hired servants. And there's a complete change of heart that has taken place between the first request that he made for his father's goods and his portion and the second request where he's simply asking to be made into a servant in his father's house. And what he realizes in the midst of this thing that he's going through within his own heart is that the value of his father went from being a source of treasure that he would bestow upon the life of this young man to now it is that the father himself is the treasure. And what this young man realized is that his father treats his slaves better than the world treats its sons. He was in the world 
And the best treatment that he could get as a son of the world is a, was a pig feeder who wasn't allowed to touch the pig's food. But he realizes that even a slave in his father's house has it better than the sons that the world has. And he realizes that I'm not worthy to be called the son of the father any longer, but I'm willing to go back and serve in his house and whatever that means. That if it means I have to wear a barbed wire suit, if it means I have to shave my head and wear robes and live in a monastery, if it means that I have to be one who ohms and chants and meditates, whatever it means, that's what I will do because I'm no longer worthy. I see that I'm not worthy to do anything else and that my father is good. And so he repents and there's fruit of that repentance in the change within his life. And so in verse 20, it says that he arose and he came to his father, but, and now notice because here's the first time the things aren't gonna go according to plan. He has this all scripted. He knows what he's gonna say. He knows how it's gonna go in his own head, but it doesn't go according to plan. He says, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, you could circle a word somewhere in that verse, just pick one, and right near it, you could write by the word found. <laughs> because that's what happens at this point now where the father sees this young man coming and while he's still a great way off, it says that he ran. And that means he would have to gird up his, his robe. He would have to uh, undo whatever's in his hands. He would have to lay down the dignity of a grown Jewish man in those days who would never run. But he sees his son, and for the joy of seeing his son returning to him, he now runs out to him. It says he fell on his neck and that he kissed him. And here he, the son, he, here's the first thing that doesn't go according to plan, is he thinks it, that he, his father is not going to be willing to receive him when he comes. But what he finds instead is that there's mercy to be had. That his father receives him back with open arms. He's not angry with him. He's not there to rebuke him. He's, he doesn't call him an idiot for the things that he did. He, he receives his son back to him with open arms. There's mercy there. And now the son begins his speech in verse 21. And so the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But... And now here's the second time things don't go according to plan for this young man. He doesn't get to finish the second half of his speech. It says that the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So he covers this man who's tattered, torn, no doubt filthy from where he's coming from and the life that he's been living. He probably smells like the pig field smell. It says he tells them to take and put the ring upon his hand. The ring was the signet of the family authority. And so not only is he not going to be made into a servant, but he's immediately welcomed right back into the family. And he carries the same authority as a family member as he did before he left. And then third of all, he says, put shoes upon his feet. A servant would never wear shoes in those days. It would be the sign that you were a servant is that you were unclad on your feet. And so he gives him a robe to clothe his unrighteousness. He gives him a ring to signify that he's welcomed into the family. And he puts shoes upon his feet to elevate his position uh, that was there. And what this is, is an expression of grace. So he receives mercy and that the father openly and willingly forgave him and received him with embracing love. And then he receives grace in that he gets what he doesn't deserve. And that is a place reinstated as a son within the family. And then he goes on in verse 23 and he says, And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. And you could circle the word merry, and nearby you could write the word rejoice. And so he was lost, he was sought after, he was found, and the result of that is that there's rejoicing in the heart of the Father. Now Jesus could have ended the parable right there. Because he's made his point. He illustrated what he was getting at with the sheep and with the coin. And then he clothed it with real life with this parable of the two sons. But he doesn't. He goes on and he gives kind of an, uh, uh, um, what's that word when it's after? A post-log. What is it? Is it an epilogue? Yeah, an ep- prologue is before. Thank you. He gives kind of an epilogue to the story. And he kind of describes now after the climax of the return the response of the other son, who we find is just as much a prodigal uh, as, as this son, he was just as far away from the father's heart as the other son, even though he never left home. And Jesus speaks this just for the sake of the Pharisees that were there standing by. It says this, it says, now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Neither came his father out, or I'm sorry, therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, prostitutes, you have killed for him the fatted calf. So the response of this younger son is a response of rejection of his brother and anger towards his father because his father so willingly received the son back into his uh, his care. But what we see here is that there are five elements in what we see in this young man that show to us that his heart was as far from the father as could be. The first thing that we see there is that he was out in the field. Now, the business on an estate of a rich man in Israel in an agrarian society like this the family's position would be in the house. The business would be done in the house. The labor and the cultivating and the harvesting, all of that would be done in the field. But the accounting and all of the, um, you know, the higher work that needed to be done in order to bring things to market and run the business, those things would be done in the house. You recall from the story of Joseph, the lower slaves were out in the field, but the administrators were in the house. That's where Joseph uh, was because he was put in that place of authority. But we see here that this brother's in the field. Now, why was he in the field? You know why he was in the field? Because he wanted to be in the field. He didn't have to be in the field, but he didn't want to be in his father's company, and so he was out in the field. We see secondly in this passage that this young, this older son, that he was more comfortable getting his input and information from the other servants than from coming to his father directly that he was closer with them or felt more comfortable talking to them than he did by just going to the source of finding out what the problem. How hard would it be if you hear the music to just go in the house and see what it is? But there's a reason here why he doesn't want to go back inside. The third thing we see about this older son is that he was angry when his father was happy. He was angry that his father was happy. 
Fourthly, that he was, um, he also was only concerned with his father's goods. Notice what it says in verse, the end of verse 29. He says, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with, with my friends. And so he was just as concerned with the goods of his father as the younger son was in the story. Only his means of receiving those things was to not transgress the commandment and to just wait until the father kicked the bucket. And then he would have his day when he would receive uh, of his own. And he expresses anger here that the father never extended to him any of the resources that he gave uh, concerning the younger son. But isn't it interesting, um, the response of the father? Well, there's one more um, thing that made this brother a mess. And it is that he could care less about the condition of his brother. That it mattered not to him one bit that his brother was at home. But notice the response of the father in verse 31. It says that he said unto him, son, you are ever with me and all that I have is thine. Everything that I have is yours. The only reason, son, that you've never gotten a fatted calf to kill with your friends is because you never asked. Because in your mind, it was all about commandments and rituals and doing what was right. And everything with you was on paper and it was legal and it was, I've done this, so you should do this. All you had to do was ask. But you never tapped in. You never understood the benevolence of my heart and who it is that I am underneath the surface of what you see on the outside. He says, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and he was lost and he is now found. And so the lesson of the parables, the three parables that all speak the same thing uh, in this chapter is this. It concerns the heart of the father towards them that are lost, towards those that are considered publicans, sinners, and outcasts in society. And here's what it is, that his primary concern for those that are lost is that they become found. That's what he wants. More than what they're doing, more than why they're lost, more than the wrong concepts that drove them into that lost position in the wilderness, he's concerned with seeing them brought back into that right relationship with him. It's common in the Bible for God to repeat himself you know, twice to confirm a thing. He'll say something and then he'll say it twice and that's to be a confirmation. But here we see Jesus repeating something three times. One with the parable of the sheep, the second with the parable of the coin, and then the third with the parable of the lost son. And what Jesus is essentially saying to these murmuring Pharisees that are upset because Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with publicans, is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, guys, I want to tell you something. I want to say you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. I'm going to tell you once. Because a man with a hundred sheep would go, if he lost one, and he would find that one, and he'd bring it back, and he'd rejoice. He says, let me tell you why you're wrong a second time. Because if a woman had 10 coins and she lost one, she would sweep the house with a light and she would go, for, she would go all out until she finds it. When she finds it, she'd rejoice because she brought... You know Let me tell you why you're wrong. Because if a man had two sons and one... And, and Jesus... And he said, you want me to keep going? You want to know why I'm eating with publicans and sinners? The reason why I'm eating with publicans and sinners is because I want them to be found. And the whole reason for my coming, in fact, the whole reason why I created the world in the first place is so that that which is lost might ultimately be found. And so I'm here for that purpose, to extend grace and mercy to those that are lost. And you guys are lost. That's what he's saying to the religious rulers. There's three characters in the story, if you really sum it up. 
Number one is the insanely cold-hearted younger son who could care less about the rules or even the very life of his father. He wants to live his life his way and for his means and for his pleasure, and he could care less about anybody else. The second character in the story is that same younger son, but now he's radically on fire and in love with his father. His heart's been changed because of the things that have been going on in his life and because of the process that God had brought him through to bring him to a place of repentance. And now he's restored into his father's company with a completely changed heart. And he knows who the father is and he's home and he's home forever. The father's received his son and he's hot. The third character in the story is the lukewarm older brother. The one who never left the home, the one who's kept the religious traditions, the one who's never transgressed the covenant, the one who thinks that he deserves something from God on the basis of what he has done or what he hasn't done and is inwardly bitter because he's not receiving from the Father the things that he thinks he should receive from the Father and because of the favor that he's seeing the Father show upon others who in his mind doesn't deserve the favor that the Father is showing upon them. And thus we hear the voice of Jesus speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation and talking about the spiritual condition of Christians even in the days that we live in. And he says this. He says, I look at you as a congregation. He's not talking to us necessarily. He was talking to them. But he could be talking to us because it's in the Bible. And he says this. He says, I wish that you were cold or that you were hot. But because you're lukewarm, I'm ready to spew you out of my mouth. The cold sun, God's okay with that because there's something to go and find. There's a process wherein God can employ to go and reach that person who's lost and to bring them back into the fold and to bring them home. The person who's hot, no problem with God. They've been changed. They've repented. They've been brought into the fold. They're right with God. They know who he is. But the person who's lukewarm is so often hard to reach. The person who thinks they're right with God and who's relating to God just based, based upon hey, this is what I do, and God, this is what you should do because of what I do. That person has never been brought into an intimate knowledge of who God is. See, the preciousness of God is not in what he gives or what we get. The preciousness of God is in who he is. And the person who has seen what they are internally and recognizes the unworth that is in them, and yet at the same time recognizes the benevolence and the love that he shows by giving grace and mercy to sinners that don't deserve it, that person comes to God in a completely different way than they ever had previously. No longer is it about what I'm going to get from him. Give me the portion of good that delivers to me. But that person can then say, make me into one of your servants that I might be who you made me to be because you're good. And that's the grace that Jesus extended towards the publicans and sinners, and it's the grace that he was extending towards the Pharisees, but they would not hear it. One last thought before we close. I know that there are uh, many, many parents, um, even in this church, probably represented here in this group tonight, that you have prodigal sons and prodigal daughters uh, that are constantly on your mind. 
people that you've raised in the faith or maybe you got saved um, later on in life and, and now they're out there kind of in the world and they're doing their own thing and, uh, and you, don't, you, know, you don't know if they're ever going to come to Christ. You share as much as you can and they're not hearing a word that you're saying. Oftentimes you even maybe blame yourself because of things that you did do or things that you didn't do and, and, and there's a guilt that you're carrying because of it. A couple of things just from this parable that I would, I would give you uh, from the passage that might encourage you. Number one, understand this that even God, who is the perfect father, has prodigals. He never makes a mistake in anything that he does. He never doesn't give someone something that they need. He never withholds something that's good. And yet even still, he has prodigal sons and daughters. And God made every human being with a free will. And he calls every one of us into our own personal relationship with him. And we must all come to that place. And so don't blame yourself if you're a parent here with a prodigal son or daughter because you think that it's your fault. Sometimes their riotous living is a part of the process of God bringing them to the place where their faith translates from being an extension of yours to being their own. And unless they come to that place themselves, they're never going to know God in the way that they need to know God. They may be like the older brother, but they'll never be like the son who's received home. And so sometimes it's the process of God to let them go out and hit rock bottom before they can come. The second thing that we see in this parable that may be encouraging to you is this, is that the fastest track to getting them back is to cut them off and let them go. Now, I'm not talking about your (laughs) 12-year-olds. Get out. (laughs) Come back when you're reformed. I I don't have any patience for you. But there does come an age in a prodigal son or daughter's life when you are not doing them any favors at all by helping them out and keeping them or insulating them from hitting rock bottom. Notice what the father did in the parable here is that first of all, he didn't lower the standard of behavior to keep the son at home. So there was a reason the son wanted to leave. He didn't want to be under the father's restrictions. He couldn't live the kind of life that he wanted to live while under the eye and watchful care of his father's farm. The rules of the estate wouldn't allow for it. And so he had to be separated. But the father didn't plead with him and say, son, I love you so much and want you here that I'm willing to let you do some of the things. I I won't look at what's going on in your room after 11 p.m. Just stay. You can have a TV in your room. You can go on the internet unfiltered. You can, you, know, you can smoke that or drink that. That's okay. Just don't leave. No, no, no. The father did not lower the standard to keep the son at home. The rules of the home remained the same. The second thing is that the father did not wire money to the son while he was off in a distant land. He didn't keep paying his cell phone bill so that he could uh, maintain means of communication. He didn't keep on loading the debit card so that there would you know, constantly be food or sending food stamps or making arrangements for him to at least eat. I'm not buying him booze, but I want him to eat. He didn't do any of those things. He said, if that's the way that you're going to live your life, then go out and live your life the way that you're going to live your life. The third thing that the father did is that he did not close the door. He didn't say that you can never come back here. But this son, this prodigal son, knew that at any time he could return to his father's house. He knew he'd have to tuck his tail, but he knew that he could come back. And I believe that there are many prodigal sons out there and daughters, and the reason why they haven't returned back yet is very simply because they haven't hit rock bottom. And sometimes the reason they haven't hit rock bottom is because out of concern for their well-being, we keep them from hitting rock bottom. 
supplying for them things that we should no longer be supplying. You say, well, what happens if I let them go and they never come back? And this is where I'll make my third and final uh, point concerning this passage. I want you to understand this. This is what God is communicating through this. Is that what he is teaching us in this chapter is that God has employed and is employing every resource at his disposal to find the one that is lost. And he knows how to do it. And so you can rest that he's in their hand and that he loves them more than you love them. And he knows how to bring the prodigal home. In the meantime, it's an opportunity for you to draw close to God in a way that you cannot draw close to God by any other experience. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, it's kind of a famous passage where he's talking, the, the musicians can come, I'm finished. But, um, <clears throat> he's talking about the things that he lost for the sake of winning Christ. And he says, everything that I ever had going for me, I counted as a loss that I might win Christ. And he says this in verse 10. He says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And you say, what is the fellowship of his suffering? Well, sometimes when you have a son or a daughter that's out there in the world and you don't know where they are or if they'll ever come, you're entering into the very suffering that he's feeling because it's the heart of God towards those that are lost. He wants them to come home. And you can experience God in a very supernatural way as you're praying through those things. And that ache that you feel in your heart over your son and daughter that's out there that isn't yet home is the same ache that God feels over the lost men and women that populate this planet, cover this planet on a daily basis. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his wicked ways and live. And it's always the heart of our Father. And it's the heart that Jesus exemplifies through this chapter. Father, we thank you tonight as we look at these uh, words that so demonstrate in such an incredible way your heart towards lost mankind. And Lord, we ask tonight, Father, in Jesus' name, that we would know you in this way, Lord, that you desire. And I pray tonight, Lord, for any here that are in that place, Lord, that they might be that prodigal, that person that you're after. That even tonight, Lord, something that's been spoken would pierce their heart in a way that they would realize your love and your care and your goodness. And that, Lord, they would come to a place where they realize that even a servant in my father's house has it better than I do out here lost in the world. I pray, Lord, for those that may occupy that position tonight, the seat of the Pharisee. Those who think, Lord, that they can earn their way into your favor. Those that perhaps are frustrated in their Christian walk and they're not enjoying you because they're waiting for you to give them something based upon their performance and not simply on the basis of your mercy and your grace. I pray tonight, Lord, that tonight, by your Holy Spirit, you would make manifest the heart of a loving Father to each one of us. And Lord, that we would know you as you are and that we would walk with you in truth and that a fire of life and love would be shed abroad in our hearts by you. And we pray tonight, Lord, for the many prodigals that are out there. 
Lord, to think that somehow they can be satisfied by the water that this world gives. Lord, that tonight you'd bring them to that point and that place, that wherever they are, where they would wake up, where they would realize, oh God, that even if it means I have to live a tortured life or the monastic life, that it would be okay, Lord, if you're real. The Father, that they would come, that you would cause the water of this world to taste so bitter to them, Lord, that you'd cause the emptiness of things out there, Lord, to no longer satisfy and that they would return home. Thank you for what you've done in our lives, Lord, and what you're doing. May we continue to find grace. And we pray tonight, Lord, with one voice, that you would make us what you desire to make us, that we would be pleasing in your sight and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.